Welcome to a very special episode of Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And it's a very special episode because we have a very special guest who barely needs any introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. James Lindsay, mathematician and um, Twitter god, is joining us tonight, and he's going to talk about social and emotional learning and why it's complete crap and very sinister. Welcome, James. Hey, Josh. Good to see you. Or Good to see you. you. Last time I saw you, we was in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> that, that day, as a matter of fact, has been remi- I've been reminded of that day on Twitter some three, four, five thousand times this week because I took that picture with Nikki Klein and left has decided that's the only thing they have on me is that I appeared in a picture with Nikki Klein. So they have lost their ever-loving minds and posted it thousands of times and replies to every tweet that I've made. Are they mad because you were in a picture with Nikki Klein or are they mad because the picture of you and Nikki Klein, you were both uh, manspreading? Well, no, they're mad because they have decided through their skills of adjudication, which are, you know, as we know, upside down, that Nikki is a sex trafficker, and therefore my being in a picture with her proves that I am a groomer, and so that when I call them groomers, I'm therefore a gigantic projecting hypocrite. Um, and it's literally like the only thing they think they have on me, and they, they they post it obsessively, and it's like I was hanging out with some cool people. Like, what's up? You know, we all went to lunch that day. I think yeah, there. So you remember we went to lunch at that that Mexican place was like what five minutes away from the place and so yeah. nikki took a screen like a selfie of us crammed into this car like six of us riding over there and she put that we were on a road trip together and they they literally like there's this huge narrative on like the whack job left that believes that nikki klein and i took a road trip across the country because of this like five minute car ride and to, one what to sex traffic people pretty. yeah obviously jesus that's retarded they're the, they're the, literally, like, this is, like, the stupidest thing that I've ever seen in my life. It's it's just unbelievable how desperate they are to try to discredit somebody who um, has, has punctured their little bubble a little bit. Well, maybe they need some SEL. So, um... Yeah. <laughs> before, <laughs> before we decide that, let's, um... I know you've done this a million times. I listened to uh, the other day. I listened very carefully to your uh, episode that was out, I think, two weeks ago on your New Discourses podcast. Um, I think it was four of four episodes, but you you talked specifically about SEL. So I'm asking you to condense something uh, down. But for people with virgin ears to this idea, what is social emotional learning? Yeah, well, let me just warn you, and I won't do this to you, but... Every time I try to condense SEL or social emotional learning down into something, two things happen. One is it takes five hours, and the second is that it come off sounding like Alex Jones. Um, okay. Social emotional learning is really a catastrophe, and it's really hard to convince people that 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 it, that it's as big of a, a danger as it is. But let's try to play, you know, nice. Let's try to explain it in terms they might recognize, meaning the people who push SEL. Okay. SEL is the brainchild of an organization that was founded around the creation of SEL. It turns out these things came into existence together. That's called CASEL. CASEL stands for the collaborative. It's always a freaking collaborative, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative for academic, social, and emotional learning. 
And so that kind of gives you the idea of what this is, you know, nominally about. It's the idea that academic learning in schools is not sufficient, that character education, values education, social education, I almost said grooming, social and emotional education are always happening in the school. So, hey, isn't it better if these things are happening anyway, that they happen in an organized and programmatic fashion? Um, that's the sales pitch anyway. So they, their, their claim is that, well, we claim that we believe incorrectly that schools are just in a place of academic learning, but they're also a place of emotional, social um, learning, and also, you know, kind of figuring out what it means to be a citizen within within a given society. So why don't we make that explicit and instruct children in character values, social and emotional skills and citizenship quite explicitly? So it has kind of five domains within the Castle framework. Castle emerged, by the way, in 1995. SEL was brand named in 1994 by the same group of people who were operating a, a new age occult uh, retreat place called the Fetzer Institute in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They created it literally at an occult. Well, it just sounds like place. that kind of place, doesn't it? The Fetzer Institute. You yeah, just I mean, know what's going on there. John Fetzer, so like we don't have to go too much into what Fetzering might mean in a, <laughs> um, you know, kind of dirty context. But no, Fetzer, I mean, I did a podcast, I recorded a podcast about this last night, just how crazy it is. And I want to go off in this rabbit hole because I'll be in it all night okay. about how weird the Fetzer Institute is. We'll just leave it for the moment to say that it was, it is a new age spirituality, a.k.a. Okay. hippie occultism organization created by a very rich man who is no longer with us as of the 90s named john fetzer he owned the detroit tigers he was a um big radio guy okay dedicated over 200 million dollars to creating the fetzer institute and that's where social emotional learning was born that's where castle was born as its kind of organization and lobbying arm it was created by a group of people you can sometimes find their names i can only ever remember a couple of them one is tim shriver who is also the ceo of um, the Special Olympics, and another is Daniel Goleman, who was the author in roughly the same years of the book Emotional Intelligence, which ah yes, um, ah yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> which which tells you an awful lot. Yeah. Uh, so their goal was to create social and emotional education. They created five domains, and those five domains, if I can remember them all off the top of my head, in order, because they are in order, are self awareness self-management, um, responsible decision-making, relation something like responsible relationship skills, or maybe it's just relationship skills, and then uh, social awareness. And so those five domains, you're supposed to start in kindergarten really with self-awareness or even pre-K with self-awareness, teach children who they are, start talking about who they are as people, start talking about identity factors, start talking about how those interact with their social circumstances and get into self-management which could be good or bad, appropriate or inappropriate, then get into, like I said, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, and then social awareness, which we can all see without even having to pause for one second, is going to be woke city. Right. And, so uh, a couple of a couple of things occur to me here. You, you gave it the, uh, as you described it, the nice description in words that they would recognize. And taking it at face value, which of course I don't, but, you know, most people do, it sounds like, well, gee, you're talking about civics. You're talking about being a responsible citizen. 
this sounds to me, and I'm, I'm speaking with the with the voice of the average uninitiated person, this sounds to me like the kinds of things that I want taught in school. Didn't we used to teach civics? Didn't we used to teach citizenship? James, what's wrong with that? Yeah, that's the thing. So there's this huge issue. There are actually a number of issues. This is why it takes five hours to unpack yeah. social emotional learning every time. There are a number of issues right out of the gate. The first of these issues that's worth pointing out is they're not just teaching citizenship and civics. They're teaching social and emotional character development, which means that the government or the consultants or whoever it is in charge of the program and the curriculum is going to decide what the correct form of character, social and emotional development is going to be taught, which normally is a domain that we've been pretty careful to restrict to the parents. We've pulled I, I, yeah. uh, religion out of public schools because we don't think that that's the domain of the government, for example, to be to be impressing upon young minds. So the proposition here is, is that children need to be explicitly taught a certain character, and they need it to be taught by schools, and the implication is that they won't get it otherwise. This is um, that's very interesting. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, this is the usual logic, right? Is that the, their justification is, well, some kids won't get it because they don't have great home lives. They live in a bad neighborhood. Therefore, it would be beneficial if we just, you know, cast a dragnet and picked up all the kids, make sure all the kids get it because some kids might not get it. Oh, it's like actually... mainstreaming the intellectually disabled, right? Correct. And, and again, I will just remind you that it was literally originally chaired by the guy who is the CEO of the Special Olympics. Um, <laughs> just, you know, participation trophy <laughs> culture sorry. times a million. Actually, low key, I'm just going to throw this in as a spicy little nugget for everybody. I actually think that a large number of millennials are super jealous of Special Olympics kids um, <laughs> who get trophies and celebrated or we'll call it lackluster performance, give, but great given the circumstances. <laughs> and so that super lowered bar that the Special Olympics kids get to face in terms of being celebrated, I think a lot of millennials are, are um, jealous of that. And it's not a surprise that the Special Olympics CEO is in charge of the SEL thing that's actually gonna teach them how to be social and emotional robots. Um, but this is another factor in this. Is, is this the school's job, right? Well. That would be a question as it is, but then there's this weird bait and switch because there are a lot of products, and I don't mean brand names, which is another weird factor. There's actually like over a hundred brands of social emotional learning, which are almost identical, different like shell companies or whatever it is, but that's not what I'm talking about with the bait and switch. There is actually a huge grid you can make of different types of SEL products that are, are variously advertised and implemented. Um, they start with, or started with historically with what, what's called a personal responsibility model that targeted at-risk kids. But turns out that you can do a lot of other things. You can weave it into the curriculum instead, or you can do what they're doing now, which is called systemic SEL, which is to weave it into the subjects themselves. So your math lesson is taught through an SEL lens. Your reading lesson is taught through an SEL lens, et cetera. Um, so do you have a go to do you have a go to example of of like an actual piece of content that illustrates the propositions that they would they want a kid to imbibe? 
I'll get to a really good okay. example, but I want to flesh this out a little bit. Because there's also three different types, at least four, really. There's a fourth one coming down the pike nobody sees yet. But I have the good fortune of reading some documents from the Department of Education and kind of know the direction of the future. Um, but the three that so far, so, you know, I've just mentioned there's this kind of like, it can be implemented with individuals, it can be in, implemented as curriculum, it can be implemented systemically to remake the entire schooling program. But then it can also be based on taking personal responsibility for your feelings and emotions and your social circumstances, which most of us might say maybe it's not the school's place to do this, but generally that's good. It can also be rooted in terms of civic participation, which gets people out usually doing, this is a little bit of a concrete example, out doing like community service projects as a class um, to teach them the value of contributing to their community and the right ways to be, you know, civic to, to do civic participation, which in practice also turns into going to the state house and doing a die-in when there's a school shooting to try to protest gun laws or whatever. <sighs> but then there's this other aspect, number three, is called transformative SEL. And transformative SEL is actually what's primarily being implemented in a systemic way while they sell personal responsibility being implemented in an individual way. So they're telling you, yeah, we're going to take at-risk kids and we're going to target them and we're going to sit them down with a counselor and help them with their social emotional stuff get them to there's, there's evidence that this works but the evidence is for teaching them to take personal responsibility with a licensed counselor but what they're actually then doing with that is implementing transformative sel which is explicitly named as having the goal of raising critical consciousness in other words marxism and they're implementing it in a systemic way which means they're broadcasting it to everybody through every subject it's not even like you have sel class every subject is sel it's just built right in trained through it yeah and so um now and i won't get into this but there's an even more radical version coming down the pike called um culturally affirming social emotional learning that's actually oh that sounds dire culturally castle. affirming oh yeah they're, they're they have a in their official documentation that they sent to the department of education uh, before the Department of Education started talking about weaving this into the program going forward, it explicitly says that they have their list of social-emotional learning demands. It's no longer recommendations. Whoa. It's demands. And it actually says on the document in large, bold print on this particular page that these demands were derived from the Black Panther Party. Explicitly says that. I mean, it's not like I had to go digging. It's Good there God. in letters. And yet, and, yet, and, and so, people have been, okay, how frustrating. You know, you know this, and people are like, I don't believe you. <laughs> I know. It's in it's like the biggest letters that you can imagine, too. And so, okay. So there's this bait and switch where they're selling a different kind of product, though, in two different ways different from what you think it is. Because when they sell their, they say that it's to help at-risk kids, they don't tell you wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We actually redefined at-risk so that every kid's at risk. At risk of trauma from the COVID circumstance, at risk of not graduating. They literally made a circular definition. At risk, this is applicable, last I heard, in 42 states already. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said graduating this. graduating without social emotional competence. So you're oh my at God. risk of graduating without being social-emotional competent. So therefore, you're at risk and justifies the federal government giving the school district loads of money to implement social-emotional learning. At risk is is one of those terms. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because the first thing that I always want to ask is at risk of what and be specific. We, well, they have. Uh, you know, it used to be at least what we inferred from that 
25, 30 years ago when that stupid phrase started to gain currency was at risk of not eating, at risk of being hit by their parents, at risk of not having a home to sleep in. That's what we inferred that they were saying, but it sounds like it's expanded beyond that. It's expanded to the point where, and I don't exaggerate at all, where every child is by definition at risk. Every single child. Well, that sounds like the left, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> the yeah, revolution never ends. At risk of not graduating social emotional compliant and at risk of learning loss due to COVID-19. <laughs> learning loss. Yeah. Yeah. Which is trauma and the trauma of COVID-19. So, I mean, they're manipulating all of the, the pieces. So here's an example of an actual thing. I mean, they do obviously do the um, gender the sexuality, the race, all of that, when you get into self and social awareness, those are the lenses through which all this is taught. In general, in fact, the social emotional learning lens is always now equity. So everything is going to, what, what it means to, to weave this into every subject is to teach every subject through the lens of equity. And so this is an actual example from an actual teacher training program Jennifer McWilliams went through and she gave this to me and I use it. This is a math word problem for second grade. Okay. Um, I know Holly will get excited that there was a math word problem coming, but this problem is very easy. It turns out it won't be that exciting for her. It is Johnny is riding in the car with his parents on the way to an amusement park. The amusement park is 50 miles away. They've already traveled 30 miles. How much further is there to go? And this is a very easy, you know, second grade math word problem. And what Jennifer McWilliams was instructed to do when doing SEL in the math lesson to teach this second grade word problem mathematics is to start the lesson by presenting the problem and then trying to increase engagement and interest. And the question that you should prompt to engage interest is, hey class, before we answer the math question, how many of you have been to amusement parks? And you get some kids raise their hand, there's seven, some have have, and some of them have not been to amusement parks. So some raise, some, some raise their hand, some don't. And then you follow it up with, okay, I see some of you have and some of you haven't. Let's talk about some of the reasons why some kids wouldn't have gone to amusement parks. Oh my and goodness. You're instructed to continue prodding until something useful comes up. In particular, not everybody can afford it. Yeah, they don't have access to, they don't have amusement park privilege, Correct. right? And that, and then what, 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 what you're supposed to do is through the lens of equity, discuss the idea that not everybody has equitable amounts of money, and then to talk about what might be done about that. And you get the kids to generate ideas like make rich people pay for it or, you know, other socialist programs. Would it be going it, overboard to say that this is – that despite what it says on the tin, that the people behind this know that this has literally nothing to do with math and they intend it to have nothing to do with math? So I would strongly suggest that the people who are the consultants implementing this know exactly what you said, but your average teacher probably is just frustrated okay. um, having to implement this crap and not understanding why they have to do these diversionary tactics for SEL competence to be reported, which is mandated through the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, this, so this, this is, this is the question. To what extent, maybe you just answered it, but... To what extent in the United States is this is SEL at any level federally mandated for American public schools to do? Is this a state by state thing? Are there mandates? And if so, how broad are they and where do they come from? No, they're actually at the district level. Almost no states 
mandate it. Although even in Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act, he signed in June or July of this year, very famously, Section 4 actually mainlines all of the five castle areas and saying that those are crucial for education. Oh, dear. It's not that it's mandated. It's that if you want federal money coming into your school district, you have to be compliant. Okay. Right. But but unless I misunderstand, though, that is that is in effect mandatory because public schools need federal money. So correct. So you're saying that if you don't do this as a public school, you will not get federal money. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. so it is in effect mandatory. Correct. And it's in probably every school district in America. And again, the point is to use these opportunities like the concept of an amusement park to have an equity discussion to teach social and emotional framing through an equity lens. And if you're talking just to flesh that example out, let me just do a couple. You can also take the kids once you get them going down poverty, you can easily loop in as a social emotional instructor teaching social awareness. You can easily loop in race. You can say, well, race and poverty are really come together. And so blah, blah, blah. You can actually also get all the kids to raise their hands and say, some of you have been, some of you haven't been. Uh, is, it, is it because your parents won't let you go? And some kids are going to raise their hand and say, yeah, my mom doesn't think I'm old enough. And now you're having a discussion about parental authority that can get really groomery really quickly. Is the issue of mom and dad riding in the car with Johnny? How many families have a mom and dad? Oh, my God. Some kids raise their hands. Some kids don't. Now you're having discussions either about sexuality or feminism, depending on which direction that goes. We're driving in a car to go to an amusement park to have fun. Kids, do you think it's a good idea? Is it really good for the environment for us to get in a car and drive to an amusement park? And now you're having a conversation about environmentalism. The idea is that you can turn literally any piece of curriculum into a discussion about leftist political agendas to be framed through an equity lens. And then what gets really sinister is, say, for example, the United Nations um, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which is called UNESCO, published a document. um, And I think this is actually something that you would have been referring to with my podcast, Josh, uh, published a document in 2019 called SEL for SDGs. So in other words, social emotional learning for the sustainable development goals. Oh, of the United God. Nations, Agenda 2030. And what they say is that education is increasingly being tooled to make students into change agents to achieve the sustainable development goals, but that this causes massive cognitive dissonance for the children because the goals are self-contradictory. It's asking an awful lot of children to save the world from environmental crisis or whatever else, blah, blah, blah. They're losing their education in place of becoming turned into so-called Greta Thunbergs or whatever it is. And... This causes massive cognitive dissonance. That's what their article says. And social Wait, they're, 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 is they're, the, the purveyors themselves are actually admitting this straight up. Yeah. And then they say that social, they make social emotional learning perfect because of its orientation toward teaching social and emotional skills. It also becomes the perfect tool to fill the school with the opportunity to manage that cognitive dissonance and to encourage resilience. And what does resilience mean? In well, the- it's the opposite of fragility, and that's not a word that they misused any in the last few years, is it? <laughs> so you see, you're white fragile. You're, you have white fragility. When you get called racist on their terms and you reject it for any reason whatsoever, in any way whatsoever, that's fragility. So when they brainwash you with the su- sustainable development goals or the equity lens or the comprehensive sexuality education or whatever, and it makes you uncomfortable, that's fragility. 
Resilience is shutting up and taking it. It is actually okay. being a good, re-educable, compliant gulag inmate. This is exactly what I wanted to get to. This is what I suspected. I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. This is exactly, it's not like, it's not eerily similar to, it is an example of the exact psychological abuse that happens in child abuse, domestic abuse, cult indoctrination. This is what happened to my family in my abusive childhood. This is what has happened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I've talked to who've gone through uh, a similar thing. This is the, and you know, James, that I talk about on this show, I, f I focus a lot on cluster B personality disorders um, yeah. because that is the psychology of people who are congenital congenitally abusive. It's the psychology of abusive spouses, abusive parents, cult leaders. Um, this is this is what they do. They take they target their victim and they abuse them. And when the victim reacts as a normal organism would react by crying, by objecting, by trying to leave, the act of defending yourself is is turned around and is called an act of abuse or defiance. I mean, this this sounds to me like a well, I mean, it just sounds like abuse. Well, it is. It's also, it's not just eerily similar. It's virtually identical to the brainwashing programs that Mao Zedong implemented in his schools in China in the 1950s and again in the 1960s when he got power again and created his Red Guard. Um, in particular, the use of struggle, uh, as they called it, or pipan dojeng in, in Chinese. They, they literally use struggle sessions. That's why we call them struggle sessions. Mm -hmm. Dojeng means struggle, struggle. in Chinese. Okay. And Pipan is like critical or something, critical theory-ish or whatever. So Pipan Dojang means critical theory struggle session. And so what what's going to happen is when these issues get brought up by the educator acting as a facilitator into the equity lens, the goal is to make a social and emotional example out of the circumstance. And then you're going to have kids that get more and more awkward. They end up on the hot seat. And then the goal is to get them to see the world through that equity lens, which is, in other words, you're going to have the entire class creating social pressure, the teacher as an authority figure creating social pressure in the guise and in the name of that being not what's happening, in the guise of helping them, in the guise of um, teaching them or instructing them or helping them develop proper values or whatever it is. And they're going to be put on, this, on the spot. So if some kid says, well, you know, I don't think that I, I think that people should have to pay to get into an amusement park because it's not fair to people who earn money. And a struggle session is going to commence under social emotional learning. That child's not being properly socially aware. They're not making, you know, proper uh, awareness of their social dynamics or whatever the hell the five categories are. Yeah. They're not being self-aware enough to have kept quiet where they've now said something that in terms of the equity lens, which Mao called the people's standpoint, um, <laughs> that, that might make other kids feel uncomfortable or different. And so what we're actually seeing is a exact reproduction of the, the brainwashing. And that's, again, the Chinese term. Why do we call it brainwashing? The Chinese term is she now means wash brain for what oh they were goodness. doing in those schools and, pro, and, and, and in the prisons that Mao said, they, they, they don't, they don't fool around with their language in China. They're very blunt. Um, they'll call you fat the second they see you and think they're being nice. Uh, they really will. You you get used to hearing it. And you're like, ah, 
how's that go? Um, short, short, that's skinny. Um, pangda, that's fat. Yeah, okay, so, <laughs> ni hao, pangda, that is a very common thing you hear. They're very blunt with how they speak, and okay. so they literally called their education program brainwashing, that they had to be washed of the pernicious influences, the bourgeois perspective, the individualist perspective, the liberal perspective, and they had they had to be washed out of their minds so that they would have room to adopt the people's standpoint, as it was called, which is Renmin Li Chong in in the original Mandarin. Um, so, yeah, it's the same. And what are communists who are taking over countries with totalitarian? They're abusers. Well, They're the exact same yes. abusers. I, I, there's a. I want to draw a connection here. I'm going to try to draw this. Um, I, I, I think you're going to agree with me, but of course, uh, where you differ, please say so. When I first became aware of you, James, um, I think I first became aware of you as just a, uh, as a guy who cracked me up on Twitter. Um, but I mean, obviously, very quickly, I, I saw that you were serious and that you were doing very serious work on this. And what struck me, I remember thinking this when when you were new to me um, as somebody I, I noticed online, said this guy talks, talks about psychopaths. He talks about. Well, he talks about the personality disorder. He talks about people who don't have conscience, people who are sadistic and manipulative consciously and malignant. And. It, I hesitate to say it made me happy, but as you know on this show, the way I see the world, my view is that what we are dealing with culturally, um, I used to say in the, in the beginning uh, when this show was younger, I used to say this is on the woke left. I don't say that anymore. This is, this is now the left and mainstream, and it, and it is creeping out of the left as well. But my view is that we are dealing culturally with a problem that is best described and best analyzed through the lens of serious character and personality disorders. We call it cluster B today. We didn't always call it that. This is a category that includes psychopaths, narcissists, borderline personality, histrionics. I see a big overlap between the way you look at the world and, and the way I'm seeing it, and I'm wondering what it looks like to you. Who are these people? Are these people, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about, there's the people at the top. They're the real purveyors of ideology. But then there are the, for every one of them, there are 20 foot soldiers out there who may or may not be. How do you see this? Are these people psychopaths at the top? Yeah, I think that there, we should qualify by saying it is a bit like an onion. You know, there's different layers. And if we start kind of deep in the middle, which turns out to be empty, if you peel an onion, you get to the middle layer, there's nothing there. Um, so there's a psychological black hole maybe. But uh, I do think that we're dealing with psychopaths, borderlines. Um, you're much more severe... Uh, personality disorders and even, you know, essential psychopathy, which is slightly yep. different. Um, yeah, the bad seed, the born that way. From that, I think that's where you're going to find most of your other cluster Bs. I think they get caught into the orbit because it's, I don't think they are necessarily psychopaths themselves. Take, yeah. for example, another uh, uh, cluster B disorder, which is schizoid personality disorder. It's actually cluster A. Is it cluster? Yeah, oh, but sorry. but but no. Go, please go. Yeah, go. Well, I with mean, it. if we look at like Derek Bell, the creator of uh, critical race theory, um, it's virtually certain to me that he was both schizoidal yep. and paranoid. So that's A uh -huh. and C. Then 
And I mean, it's very, very clear that he had something wrong with him in those regards. But I think that those people have a strong need for from my dealings in person, as it often is the case that you deal with somebody in person that's close to you who has one of these disorders, and that's how you yeah. learn to see it in the world. Uh, but I had a number of close friends in my late 20s who were uh, pretty severely schizoidal. Okay. Uh, schizoid personality, I should say, not schizophrenia in yep. any regard. And they have this strong desire to make the world conform to a fantasy about it that they've written in their heads, or else you have the all of a sudden eight-year-old emotional reaction triggered by encountering the world not matching the fantasy that they've written, which is usually this kind of cartoonish story. And I feel like people in this this next layer out, and a lot of the narcissists, get caught up in wanting to adjust the world to suit them because it's, in some sense, an easier path. But are they essentially psychopathic and malicious? No, they're just mm -hmm. broken and yes. can't help but try to make everybody conform to their fantasies. Um, then you get further out after that, and you start just having people who, um, you know, they want they don't want to they don't want to take responsibility for the fact that becoming a success is very hard, and um, it's really easy to blame other people. And I don't think that these people are necessarily personality disordered at all. They've just been fed a theory that gives them a line of lots of excuses to where it's never their fault. Yeah. So it's not quite personality disordered. It's like chronically unable or unwilling or afraid to take responsibility responsibility yes absolutely yeah, yeah like that... a, it's it's more of like a, a you know failure to grow up or yeah delayed or, or delayed maturation or, maturation or arrested yeah. maturation hey are you and then outside of that you have a bunch of stupid people who think it sounds good and they haven't thought about it more than like 30 <laughs> seconds and literally that's the largest that's like this cloud <laughs> of people who will be really mean to you and really ruin your life. I've never seen it, that before. It sounds like you're exaggerating. Yeah, right. The, <laughs> the, the, the like, it, it's like gaslighting by ignorance or something like that. They're just fucking stupid, and they're gaslighting you. My other favorite one with that regard is, well, I just can't see that being what people would do. Uh, and it's like, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, um, I know. I know every everybody's everybody's decent at the core. Hey, are you up to answering some audience questions, James? Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, especially since you just got to the part where we talk about things that are fucking stupid. I think now we're ripe for it. Um, yeah. Well. <laughs> All right, folks in the audience, um, uh, raise your head. Let's see. Yes, please raise your hand. I'm gonna call on you. I'm gonna invite you in. Um, Couple of sentences, please. Ask your question to James, and we will start with uh, as above, below. Let's get her in here. Hello. Can Hello. you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, good. All right, so why do you think the teachers didn't try to stop SEL or CRT based on it being a belief system when there's supposed to be a separation of church and state? Was it because they were too indoctrinated in this belief system first, or was it like the Abilene Paradox where no one spoke up? And they ended up doing something that no one enjoyed. Um, I think if we look at the time frame when this was occurring, that it's mostly the second of those. But there's another factor that wasn't put on the table, which is that they just didn't realize how insidious it is. Um, the, the actual progression in schools has been this kind of mounting. And I don't know if this was intentional, 
Um, but there's been this just increasing pile of shit that teachers have to deal with outside of their regular teaching duties, which are getting harder and harder because of behavioral issues, more and more strange things that are getting added to the curriculum, the curriculum changing every like year and a half. But what what happened under No Child Left Behind, which was George W. Bush, who, by the way, is a regime operative. If you don't understand that yet, I can't help you with a lot of things. Um, w put in No Child Left Behind and tons of what, what one of the things that came out of it was tons of extra paperwork for teachers. Tons and tons of reporting, not just on what the kids are achieving in their tests, but what the teachers are doing to make sure that the kids achieve in their tests. This got expanded massively with Common Core. We can complain about the Common Core curriculum all we want, and there's lots of reasons to do so. You can tie it back to the United Nations and the World Core curriculum from which it came. You can look at you know crony uh, rhino governors throughout the United States, and then the Democrats pushing it, and Obama's education department with Arne Duncan shoving it on us. You can look at a lot of things, but one of the main things that it did, we can talk about the curriculum all day long, is that it also more than doubled the amount of already insane paperwork that the teachers were having to do under No Child Left Behind. So No Child Left Behind increased paperwork. Then you have all these new things you have to report on all of a sudden under uh, Common Core. And then in 2015, with the passage of ESSA and Castle going around and lobbying or uh, sending out consultants and bringing districts into the social emotional learning program to get them to be able to check off yet another reporting box of what they were doing with non-academic competencies that had been mandated by ESSA to be reported was even more reporting. And you have this thing that comes along and says, here's all this paperwork you have to do, and now you have to do some more paperwork. And by the way, here's this thing right out of the box that we're going to bring, and it sounds great. We're going to teach kids skills. We're going to bring in counselors. It's going to be helpful. Look at the behavior issues. We're going to cure the behavior problems by doing, bringing in the social workers instead of the, you know, the police. And the teachers right. would not have been in a position in many of the cases to realize that anything was necessarily wrong with the social emotional learning program at the time, which is just, it's like the boiling frog approach is really a lot more um, relevant. But, yeah. you know, you put yourself in their position. You're spending an extra 20 some odd, 30 some odd hours a week filing paperwork from the teachers I've talked to just to keep up with what you're required to report all the time so the school continue can, can continue to get its federal money. Then all of a sudden they say, by the way, now you have to report on these new things. And some consultants with something that sounds really great that will cure another huge problem that you're starting to have that's driving you nuts, come in and say, here's this thing right out of the box. It's going to make all of that new requirement easy for you. It'll streamline everything. Social emotional learning sounds great. Let's go. Let's and get I it. I think that that's how it went. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to get another question in here. Um, let's let's uh, hear from Ellen Kerfuffle. Hi, James. Um, thank you for being here and taking our questions. I think yeah. that's really neat. Um, my question is pretty simple. Um, when I was younger, I was one of those pushback kind of students, you know, questioning everything. What? How do they deal with the inevitable um reality that some of these students are just not going to be able to be brainwashed some of them are just beyond that what do they do with those children thanks Alan. most of them are medicated <laughs> um actually a lot of the schools depends on the state as to what age they can start doing this at north carolina it's at all ages in most states um it's 12 you can now go to a doctor via, via 
telehealth via a uh, like a iPad or Zoom or whatever, you can go to a doctor and be prescribed things like Ritalin, antidepressants, et cetera. So the kids who aren't complying get sent to counselors and eventually end up getting medicated. Um, so they are medicating the kids who don't comply and they're putting them into like additional counseling sessions. The goal, one of the goals that they have right now is to get it down to where it's like one school counselor for like every five kids in every school. And you're just going to basically be assigned a psychiatrist that deals with the fact that you're unable to cope with the uh, with the stuff. It's 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 totally classic communism, which is that if you don't go along with the communist program, they psychologize you and start to treat you as a psychiatric patient for not understanding it. And that, of course, creates a further reinforcing feedback loop on the other kids who see this don't want to have to go to the counselor or get stuck on whatever and um you know get deemed crazy or whatever and so they're more likely to conform but honestly the way that they're dealing with those kids primarily is by deciding that there must be something wrong with them that they have primary anxiety or primary depression or that they have a attention deficit disorder mm. or something and putting them on psychoactive drugs in large numbers which they can prescribe behind the parents back directly from the school and in many cases uh once you cross a certain age and in some states again it's all ages it is outside of the parents range of uh what they're allowed to know under like patient privacy that, act absolutely absolutely freaking outrageous we could do a whole show on that let's get a question in here uh welcome meve starton uh let me unmute you Okay. Um... And we lost, uh, sorry, we lost your connection. We're going to go to the next one. Uh, Brentley, you are up. Hey, James. Great to see you here. Uh, we met at the Fort Worth event. I do dangerous I right with my uh, boyfriend, Dan. He says hi. Oh, good to see you guys. Yeah, thank you for coming. And uh, thanks. shout out to Josh and Kevin for, and uh, Holly for organizing and hosting. I wanted to ask about uh, solutions. What are some of your favorite weapons in the war against cultural Marxism? And uh, what do you advise people uh, to do on their own? What can they do to help? Okay, so this sounds dumb, but it's honest to God, it's the, it's the best thing to do, which is exposure. Um, it has to be exposed. And what, what ultimately is going to happen is what's going to push this back Supposing the we don't make the stupid mistakes that we're trying that people are trying to bait us into making, which is to go in the direction of violence. The way this will get pushed back is through massive lawsuits. Eventually, the liability that these school systems, these virtually every institution in society, have opened themselves up to right now, the the, the legal exposure that they have is insane. But there is no legal exposure whatsoever. If the judges don't understand what the real problem is and the judges therefore have to be able to get this information which means lots of people have to know it or else they're not going to tap into it imagine that somebody like jesse singal who is perpetually flabbergasted about the changes of the world is a federal judge he's not going <laughs> to get any kind of sane ruling on any of this shit because he doesn't understand the problem actually having Thousands upon thousands or millions of people in this country who are getting more and more clear-eyed on the issue and aware of the issue is the number one priority for fighting back. And the easiest way to fight back is actually exposure. You get a copy of SEL training materials from for teachers or books or whatever and show them to people. Make podcasts about them. You get the book Gender Queer or Lawn Boy mm -hmm. or whichever other – there's like a thousand of these pornographic books that they're doing in schools – Buy a physical copy of a couple of them, put them in a backpack, 
carry it with you wherever you go. And when you're out to lunch and you're out hanging out and you're at the coffee shop and you're hanging out with somebody, boom, hey, have you seen this? Because when you look at it in physical form, it's shocking. It's a much different thing. I would actually encourage people to, if they want to do something that's not just expose and criticize, to get together and start talking about what the answer is. And people are like, well, what's the answer? What's the answer? Read the Constitution. Read the Bill of Rights. Read the Declaration of Independence. Part of the reason that this has been able to fester and grow in our society is because we don't actually know what our society is made of. Absolutely. It is shocking how much ignorance there is uh, just about the, the fundamentals of what the American Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights say. Read the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist papers. See what they have to say if you want to go even deeper. This is actually where Moms for Liberty began, if you didn't know that. Moms for Liberty as an organization began with a program that they called Liberty Ladies, which was just four or six of these women getting together, <laughs> some of whom are former school board members, some of whom are just involved. And what they were doing was going line by line through the founding documents of the United States until they understood it. And then Moms for Liberty grew out of that. So when you go read that stuff and you start and your state constitution is something most people, if you're in Oklahoma, you're screwed because it's 400 pages long. But all the other <laughs> ones, you're in pretty good shape. Um, you should read your state constitution, too, not just the federal one. Find out what your what, what is your what are the bones of your state and. It really, it's strangely inspiring to see how this thing was really put together and organized and to figure out why it was organized that way and then to share that information as well. But the, the biggest thing is to get, like, we're doing this. This is, you know, however many more people that are going to see that social-emotional learning is not the thing that it looks like on the outside of the box. And the more times that happens, the better. So the best thing anybody can do is to get informed and then tell three or four people. And if you can tell three or four hundred or three or four thousand because you have a platform, that's even better. So that's overwhelming. Like you say, well, that doesn't do anything. That's just raising awareness. Believe me, you're going to pick up judges. You're going to pick up lawyers. You're going to pick up professionals. You're going to pick up all kinds of people along the way as you spread the word who are going to know what to do, who are going to take action. I just got off the phone like two days ago with like the legislature of Louisiana that's ready to go to war on this issue now because it finally ended up on their radar. They finally heard some serious stuff. They got told to contact me. Next thing you know, they're going to war for it. So that happens because somebody put the information under their noses and it freaked them out. Somebody's gotta be putting the information out to get it to freak people out like that. Excellent. Uh, you got time for a couple more questions? Yes. Okay, we're gonna take, we're just gonna take two more and then I have some one other person that I'm gonna call on. Um, um, Jeannie Gold, you know who you are, so don't go anywhere. Breezes, you're up. Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, well, Brentley kind of beat me to my question, but I guess mine is a little more individual level than his was versus policy. So for those of us who see things the way you do uh, and we're surrounded by woke and quasi-woke liberal people who are kind of in the cult, but we're you know, kind of putting it on the line to reach them, um, have you encountered a, a particularly effective strategy for getting through to people in a way that you don't just immediately sound like Alex Jones to them? No. Um, so I encourage <laughs> you to get used to feeling that way. Uh, what I have found is that the only way that somebody who's in the cult gets cracked out of the cult is when a crack manifests in front of their face so big that they can't ignore it, which... I could tell you it's possible that you'll trigger, but you probably won't. 
usually what has to happen is something that they some narrative that they fully bought into it's stuck in their face by either collapsing or damaging something they care about, affecting their life directly, or just being so paradoxical to how they think the world is that they have this huge gaping crack in the kind of, you know, wall of the Matrix or the Truman Show or whatever that they now can't not see. And then it all kind of starts to go after they detect one big glaring problem or one especially big glaring lie so what i tell people is rather than trying to figure out how to break open those people which is virtually impossible you're talking about cult deprogramming which maybe you studied and are qualified to do but you probably haven't um what you want to be is you want to be positioned such that when the crack happens for any given person in your life you are a equipped and b um, recognized as a trust, a trusted, worthy, uh, safe person for them to come to and say, okay, I know you have some other thoughts. What's going on? Can you explain this stuff to me? You want to be the person who can step in and be that person for those people, which does tell you that you should probably try to avoid coming off as being a total Alex Jones in front of a lot of people all the time. Um, but I mean, Alex Jones was right. Jars are pretty full across the country right now, too. I'll just say that that you you want to be positioned to deal with the cognitive dissonance that people have when they encounter a a crack in the matrix rather than being the person who tries to create it. And just as a general piece of advice, let me just remind everybody this is very important. It took me a long time to figure this out and a lot of pain and a lot of error. The people in your family and your close friends are going to be the hardest ones to reach not the easiest. You think, oh, we have this bond, they're gonna listen to me, they're important to me, they're gonna take me seriously. No, that works both ways. They think that you should listen to them every bit as much as they listen to you. And if they're in a cult, that means they're right and you're wrong and you're not gonna get yeah. anywhere with them. And it's extraordinarily contentious. If this is already on hard mode, you're going to like God mode to try to like fix your brother or to fix your yeah. your mom or whatever it's the, always in your life always hardest always hardest with family all right we are going to we are going to give the last question as you know james you have an army of fan gays i do. Uh, I, I love my fan gays that's you, true. you like so you feel okay about having fan gays of course okay well that's good because we've got the queen the king of the fan gaze here, um, and I'm going to let him speak for himself. Genie Gold, otherwise known as my BFF from college, George, you're up. George? That was really built up and then... I know. Very George, quiet. are you listening? You're missing your chance here, sweetheart. <laughs> okay. Well, then it's going to be for next time. We are going to give the last question to Meve Starton. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Um, can you hear me? We can hear you. Okay, great. Um, so my question is concerning higher education. Obviously, universities and colleges have gone off the deep end. So my question is, do you see any possibility in the future for kind of a resurgence, a renewal of grassroots um, 
almost like new universities to start where it's basically people who know teaching people who want to learn where it's scientists um, gaining funding wherever they can um, mathematicians um, people of any um, you know any one of the oh my gosh I'm losing my mind just um, just bring bring it to yeah, the question yeah basically do you think that it's possible for almost a new system to an alternate system um, of higher learning to happen where it almost like starts like as a reaction against universities, almost like an alternate university system. Cool. And then, and then it turns into something more. Thank you. Well, Yes, sort of. Um, the way that I kind of see it, first of all, let me just say that academia, in my opinion, higher education is so thoroughly corrupted that it cannot be fixed from within. It is uh, gone, all the way gone. It, it will not redeem itself, um, except at the very ugly end when it has no remaining choices, uh, should it get to that point. It must be, therefore, if it's to be fixed or redeemed or whatever, it must that must happen from without, which means it will be in response to legislative pressure and also, more importantly, market alternatives, which are is, is what the heart of your question is, is would there be a, a different educational model? I think that this is already, first of all, happening in all regards. We are seeing decreases in the number of people wanting to go to college. We are seeing... People that are, you know, Google created its own coding school, for example, not that I want to prop up Google, but they're like basically, you know, it's like the TSA pre-check of becoming a, a computer engineer. It's like skip the line, just study with coding with us and come on in. And you don't have to go to college and get a four-year degree for this. Um, the credentialing mechanism of college is starting to falter. I talk to hiring managers all over the country at different points, at different events that I go to. And I keep hearing it, and it's, it used to be something I heard rarely that was kind of whispered, and now I'm hearing it more and more, and now I hear people kind of boldly saying it and openly saying it, is that if they get an application for a job, unless it's one that absolutely requires a college degree, uh, they look at the applications of people who don't have college degrees first. And if they have an Ivy League degree, they just kind of slide those to the bottom and try to avoid looking at them. I'm astonished to hear that, but happy to hear it, actually. This isn't everybody. I mean, like, the the problem is, is the big things like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and all these that are basically revolving doors to the Ivies, those haven't changed. When we start looking at the uh, the kind of the bones of, of the American economy – more and more and more managers are looking away from hiring what they see as a undereducated, entitled potential liability bomb. And that's how they're starting to see college educated people as potential liabilities. So they're going to create a civil rights lawsuit for the company. They're going to put the company into an awkward situation. It's going to be an extortion racket. They're going to hire somebody. They're going to be dissatisfied and, they're, and, and entitled and they're going to be removed you know, within a few months or they're going to move on within a few months because they don't that, like the corporate. That's culture. real. I mean, that's, you know, that that's you know, in a very small capacity. 
I've faced right. that same decision myself hiring people. I, I did hire somebody who did not have a college degree in part because of this. Yes, this is happening all over the country at all scales outside of those revolving door to the Ivies, um, super bourgeois, you know, basically the eminence of the problem industries like banking. But outside of that, this is happening everywhere. What that means is there's an increasing vacuum for actually finding, you know, educated and professional workers whose for the we were basically for the last 30 to 40 years or 50 years being lazy and letting the university system credential these people and just assuming that they got their credentials so they're good to go and what it, people are waking up to is that they're going to have to be alternate modes of authenticating that somebody's qualified to have a professional job and i think what we're going to find is that that's going to start organically creating things that function similarly to what a university should be doing, but in a completely different paradigm and a completely different shape. And I think within, if supposing that everything doesn't go broken, I think that within five to seven to eight years, we're gonna see the university system as it is falling very far behind in comparison to these things that are starting to emerge and trying to all of a sudden coming around and trying to play catch up. The thing is, though, is that they actually have what for all of what they provide that is genuinely valuable to that age demographic that they primarily serve in the communities that they serve. They are genuinely operating on kind of an outdated model and they are wholly institutionally captured. Um, and that, that, that rot is just going to, I think, cause the need for something that achieves what we've relied on them to achieve in a much more efficient and much less corrupt way. Um, I think that there are also things that can be done to deliberately cause this to happen. A lot of the professional pipelines require licensure or whatever and require degrees. State legislatures or even Congress, if it were to be mm -hmm. such a thing at the federal level, can change different pathways to licensure, different pathways to accreditation, et cetera. They could, colleges of education have a complete monopoly on who gets to be a teacher in this country at this point. And states are openly asking me if it's in their best interest, in my opinion. I mean, multiple states have asked me this. They're, they're legislators. And sometimes people in their cabinets, the governor's cabinets have asked me, well, should we just start opening new ways to credential teachers so we don't have to rely on the colleges of education, which have obviously uh, betrayed us? That is That's so good. good to hear that, that they are actually asking you this, that this is occurring to people, because, it, I mean, if you ask me, yes, that needs to happen. And not only does that need to happen, um, but a, a sort of a concurrent project that I wish states would do. Um, we need to slash uh, the categories of jobs that require state licensure, we need to slash it to perhaps 5% of what it is today um, because it's part and parcel of the same problem. Uh, but I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm, They've I'm, captured these credentialing institutions and states are, at, at least the, the Republican-led states right now, are actively looking for ways to get around that. They've identified that where we've trusted these professional organizations, whether the American Medical Association, whether whatever the teachers things are through the colleges of education, whether it's the American Bar Association, whatever it happens to be, we've outsourced our society, really, the professional echelon of our society to these entities. And they have 
been captured and they are betraying us. And there are state legislatures and governor's cabinets in red states around this country right now that are cognizant of this and already trying to take proactive steps. I talked to a congressman, and I guess I should not mention which state because it's a battleground purple state, but uh, where he said that actually he has business leaders in his state contacting him almost every week, if not a few times a week, asking for some other pathway than just college educated to, to, to certify who get who gets to be, you know, a worker or whatever, where there's these these hoops to get through. And so, you know, that's a that's a U.S. congressman representing that state. Excellent. They, the, this is a problem that people are becoming aware of. And what it will do is it will start to create a, a vacuum. I mean, the vacuum already exists where the university used to just fill this in. The vacuum exists now where we're recognizing that it's not a sufficient um, credentialing entity and that it's corrupt and that it's creating uh, outputs that are liabilities, that it's creating entitled people who won't work in a job that so there, there's not enough, say, veterinarians or whatever other professional career that they've studied for, and then they won't get any other job or accept, you know, low-level service jobs, and then the, everybody's miserable. These problems are becoming much more clearly in focus, and that vacuum of authority that's opening up will be filled by entrepreneurs and by people who just need to solve the problem and, and get people in the door to do an effective job. Like, I mean, he's, he's, he's an ex extreme case, but you pull up Elon Musk and what he's done with Twitter in the past yep. few weeks, where he's just basically fired everybody. He's like, yeah, we'll just find new people, whatever. And it, it's like, he doesn't think about it. He just shrugs his shoulders and like, yeah, like, get rid of all these freaks. Let's well, he's absolutely ones. right. Yeah. And 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 may this accelerate, may this effort accelerate because it's what we need. James, if, if people who want to uh, you, you well, I don't think you do anything that isn't a deep dive. Um, but people who want to know more about this specifically in detail, uh, newdiscourses.com, the best place for them to find you and uh, and listen to this. Yeah, if they want to hear about SEL, there's a fair amount of well, there's a lot of audio podcast material there's a little bit of video um where i did a workshop in july it's really funny everybody was saw this workshop i did in july about education there's four episodes of it it came out on the youtube channel and everybody's like james is so much sharper since he got off twitter it's like bitch that was in july i was fully <laughs> on twitter don't even i was just i'm just getting sharper period but, uh, <laughs> there is some really good stuff if you're interested in social emotional learning and education that's really the bulk of what I've put on new discourses in, in terms of audio content and video content this year. There's some written content as well. So I would encourage you to go there. If you want to kind of keep up with what's just coming out, coming down the pike, of course, I'm at Conceptual James. I'm back on Twitter for the moment, at least. And um, I'm kind of all over. So you can follow me there, connect with me there. Uh, I will tell you, like I mentioned, I recorded this podcast about the Fetzer Institute and all this and social emotional learning that's going to be coming out soon. And if you're really kind of keyed into this and you want to play the deep dive Alex Jones game with me, um, this should probably, I don't know, I just uploaded it to my audio engineer last night. It should probably come out in about a week. And then the title okay. of the podcast is what I said on Twitter. It's WTF is SEL. And <laughs> you want to hear how deep into the occult this shit is. It's like when I read this a couple months ago, I literally spent the month of October with like heart palpitations because I was so stressed out about having to talk about how, oh my God, it actually comes from the occult. It, it um, really is, huh? Yeah. 
and and the receipts are i th- i mean it's a three hour episode that the receipts are going to be pretty heavy duty um going through the book and linking it the the crazy education books written by the occultists in the 20s and 30s excellent uh, and this is this is what we rely FBL. on you for um you uh, i i mean honestly for everything that you do i know everybody says this and it sounds all all freaking can but i actually mean it i'm really really thankful for you you are doing work that nobody else in this country is doing and you are seeing things you are seeing connections that very few people so far have seen that i think are absolutely vital um you matter and what you're doing is important and i really want to thank you for taking more than an hour of your time uh to talk to us tonight james thank you Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, I realized that what I do matters earlier when I saw on Twitter somebody put, um, if you knew you were only going to live 90 more days or what you're going to die in 90 days, what would you do differently? You know, one of those kind of life questions. Yep. And my actual answer was work harder because what I do matters. <laughs> I didn't say the second part, but I actually did say work harder. It's like all the time, like today, I was out with an angle grinder screwing around trying to make a dagger out of a piece of steel because let's see if I can figure out how to do Stop lying. You sat around all day manspreading and looking at yourself, and you know you did. No, I put a picture <laughs> of the halfway done dagger on Twitter. You can see it. And you can tell that somebody using an angle grinder who doesn't know what they're doing is who is who did that. Um, it's, it's quite clearly in need of some work still. Uh, but no, really, I have no idea how to use power tools. And so I was like, let's go. Let's uh, figure this out. And so I would have been reading you know, some Mark's crap probably instead if I knew I was going to die in three months because it's like, I don't have time to make a dagger. I have to tell people what's going on in the world. <laughs> well, I got a chance. It's so excellent. I... We'll talk about your next meal, the next, your last meal, the next time you come on the show. <laughs> yeah. James, thank you very, very much. Um, and everybody who tuned in and everybody who came to join us, this has been Disaffected and thank you. We'll see you next time.